0: Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
2: Hello, and welcome to The Shift, the podcast that aims to tell the no-holds-barred truth about being a woman post-40. Created and hosted by me, journalist and author Sam Baker. Where to start with the last decade of Alexandra Heminsley's life? In her compassionate new memoir, Somebody to Love, Alex explores how it feels to be gaslit by your own body, how she finally found peace with hers and what it means to be a mother.
1: Women so often feel obliged to share their flaws. Instead of just being represented well, Generally, in marketing and film and TV, they are represented in this sort of hyper-real way, which then has sort of led to over the last few years, and especially when I was feeling at my worst, to sort of endless parade of people sort of forcing reality. But it maybe wasn't always reality, it was just people sort of competitively showing their absolute worst.
2: If you're struggling to cope with your own body image, feel you've lost your sense of self, or are coping with radical or not radical change... You may find some solace here. Also, I should warn you this is quite a heavy one, but there's plenty of joy too. Alex lovely to see you in your Nordic jumper. Um, (laughs) One of the things I really like doing right at the very beginning is just give me a little bit of a sense of where you are. I'm at
1: home and I live in a sort of 1960s poured concrete block that looks over the Sussex cricket ground. I've got a balcony and half the building the balconies are kind of double glazed in and it's where my dining table aka desk is where I've written most of my books staring at the cricket. So yeah that's my setup because it's like living in a commentary box, it's very bright and light. And now I've definitely posted pictures in the past on social media with me wearing a massive cricket hat just so I can see my screen. <laughs> I
2: bet they didn't put that in the estate agent's details. No ring light required. Yeah. But... <laughs> so Somebody to Love, your memoir, it documents probably the most dramatic midlife shift <laughs> it is possible yes. To imagine, so um, maybe we should just start by talking through your story uh, to give the listeners some background. Yes, yeah. it's quite complex, isn't it?
1: Yeah, I mean, it is so lovely to hear that acknowledged that it was a massive midlife shift because I do feel like especially as the book's coming out, I'm like kind of pivoting now into the second half of my life. like I just absolutely feel it's been the biggest rethink of everything. What the book talks about is the three really intense experiences that I had in quite short succession, which made me question things that I hadn't really given that much consideration to at all, and things which I'd just blithely assumed I knew. I had a couple of rounds of IVF. It wasn't the easiest path to getting pregnant. And when I was newly pregnant, I was very anxious to know that the baby was okay, particularly because I had a new book coming out and I didn't want to be telling people that I was pregnant before I knew it was a viable pregnancy, but also needed to tell some people. So I paid and I had a harmony test, which is a DNA test.
2: And you were 40 at this point, weren't you? I was over 40, yeah. So I thought, (laughs) in my
1: wisdom, that the sensible thing to do to sort of take these problems of my anxieties away from the lap of the NHS was to pay for this private test, avoid the amnio and the risk of miscarriage. And just find out the woman that took the test rang me and quite casually said, "Oh, I'm just calling to check that you used a donor egg. And I said, no, I definitely didn't, because as anybody who's had IVF would know, the egg collection is by a significant margin, the most difficult and painful part of the procedure. And she sort of weirdly said, oh, it's just that some people lie about it. They feel uncomfortable and they just say that they haven't. So did you? And I was like, no, I I was there. Like it was, I put the injections in to me. It was very strange way to approach the fact that the test had come back saying that we me and the embryo did not share DNA. And that put us into a kind of few weeks of strange medical and legal, obviously, limbo. God, the IVF clinic basically took over and sent us to Harley Street. I ended up having to have the same invasive test that I'd been trying to avoid. And it can only have been a lab mistake. All the new tests came back. It's definitely my child. It's visibly my child. That was all fine. And it was a, a process that happened and ended but put me in a weird state for some time of feeling outside of normal in a very profound way. It just threw like a kind of party poppers worth of questions about what is parenthood? What is motherhood? What, what is it about giving birth that makes you the mother? All of those sort of things just exploded. In my mind, just certainties I'd carried since childhood or adolescence suddenly seemed very wobbly at the edges. Then I was assaulted, I was sexually assaulted. Someone grabbed me on the train when I was nine months pregnant, which in itself, depressingly, was not especially uncommon. What I found very traumatic was the man's friends then kind of coming and trapping me in a carriage at the end of the mm. train and telling me it hadn't happened and everyone was talking about what a liar I was. Then it went to court and the guy who admitted in court to like a kind of laughable list of booze that he'd had that day, it was like crazy. It was like 10 pints, 10 gin and tonics, two bottles of wine, and then there was the wine on the train. But you were pregnant, so you were probably really emotional and it would be really traumatic for him to be found guilty of, sexual assault so we're gonna go is not guilty a male magistrate obviously I never questioned from the moment it happened till the day I went to court that I wouldn't be seen as the reliable one every policeman every person in the court all my friends my family well at least they know I was stone cold sober but that wasn't enough pregnancy meant I could have been the mistake maker since the extract from my book ran in the papers someone's emailed me and said that they saw it all happen and she was like i saw him touch you and i saw them then follow you and she tried to get in touch with the police because she'd seen them be arrested at brighton station but she didn't realize i mean why would you that it was british transport police not
2: the police in brighton so they didn't have any record of it um so yeah that was nice it wasn't even like oh it's not proven it was like oh you're not reliable."
1: Yeah. And also hands are hot, especially in the winter. (laughs) But yeah. And then seen through the prism of these two experiences, when my son was then born and is lovely and very well and happy person, my then husband reached the point in their life where they realised they had to transition. And I say that really deliberately because I've seen the word decided to transition used quite a lot in the last couple of weeks about the book and having witnessed the process firsthand. It's not like deciding to get a new handbag. It is a slow and painful process of doing everything you can to avoid reaching the realization that there's only one thing you can do and be. When you've lived with someone reaching that position, it's very hard to then go back to using the word decision.
2: That is so, I mean, obviously I knew all that because I know you and I've read the book, but That is so, such a mind blowing pylon of gaslighting (laughs) events, actually, isn't it?
1: It was. And it did happen at a point where my body was massively changing itself. I was well into my forties. I'd had a quite a difficult birth. I had a C section. I had shingles. And I just felt like a complete stranger to everything I'd thought I'd become. I felt like it was, <laughs> it was a knitting analogy. You may or may not know I'm obsessed by knitting. But I just felt like all the threads were so tangled and I couldn't get on with the knitting until I'd set separated all the colours really clearly because I couldn't in good conscience be angry about things that were in the wrong direction so there were points where I was just like I can't even think about this court case right now I'm just going to put all my anger over here and then I'd realise like while I was waiting for the kettle to boil that no I absolutely deserved and was entitled to be livid about the court case and and so it was sort of like trying to sort of unpick each thing. And when I was a new mother was this the year when I think the Instagram mum phenomenon was at its absolute peak when they all seemed to have books out and they were throwing around terms about like, oh this that's perfectly normal. That's just what normal mums do. And I understand that the intention was largely good. But I would look at these people and try. I was trying to look for ways to separate what was the normal kind of slight dissociation from yourself of being a new mother and the whole it's perfectly natural to feel like that type feelings and what was grief at a life I thought I was going to have and fury at an assault I'd suffered and confusion at a medical situation I'd been in. And it just was so it took so long and it was so hard to try and kind of get any traction on which was which. In a way, it was like I just had to kind of live a bit longer. <laughs> and mm. I remember someone said to me at the time, this is going to really annoy you. But actually, the only thing here is you've just got to feel all your feelings.
2: But <laughs> mm, really annoying, but also was so annoying.
1: But it was actually really useful because my instinct as a kind of nerdy, wordy efforty type person was to tidy it all up and sort it all out, work out what was what, and then I can get on with things and everything will be perfectly normal. And it it was a three-year process and it was really hard. And it did mean that I had to sort of sit with things. I had to just work out what was something that time just changes and what was something that I was
2: legitimately livid about. (laughs) I mean, you write in the book really movingly about Dee's decision to transition and your feelings around that at the time. And, If it's all right with you, I'd like Mm. to read a a little Mm -hmm. bit. I rested my hand on the spongy flesh of my belly, pondering the sheer distaste I had felt for my body as it had let me down time and again. The fistfuls of hair falling out in my hands. The pyjama bottoms that no longer reached over me. The tops that strained over my enormous now-defunct breasts. This, I thought. You want to change yourself for access to this? How dare you assume this is better than how you live? The IVF with its endless needles and confidence crushing uncertainties. The doctors referring to my geriatric pregnancy. The hot, vengeful hands on my backside in the train carriage. You want to throw everything away for access to this? So mm-hmm. powerful. Yeah,
1: it's funny because I can see that situation differently now. That was obviously like my darkest moment of anger. Mm-hmm. And I thought so much about putting that bit in the book. And I'm really glad that I have now, not because I have some sort of vengeful agenda (laughs) to my ex, but because I've heard quite a lot, even in the last couple of weeks, from families of trans people saying that it's been really good to hear somebody talk about the points of anger in that process because the instinct is so often to just splatter rainbows over everything and go, Oh, this happened and it really it was fine. Everything is absolutely fine. But everything is fine now because life has moved on and changed and shifted, and we've all put a massive amount of effort into making a great family. But It was really, really hard what I now understand. And I'm sort of trying to be careful with my words because I can't speak for a community that I'm not in. But as I understand it now, what I was thinking was, you're choosing to come into this. And why do you want to be in on this when it's treating me so badly? (laughs) And now I can see Dee felt she'd always been in this and she'd never had the sort of access to any way of expressing that either verbally physically with a dress or presentation it had not been in any outlet because of fear of the response and the the price that you pay for coming out as a trans person and so instead of it being why do you want in on this it was more like I'm so desperate to now acknowledge that this is who I am and I can even see the pain that you're in, that this is how desperate I am. This is how much of a point of breaking I'm at, that I can even see this and know that I have to tell the truth.
2: Does that make sense? Yes and no, you know. Yeah. Um, I think from the outside, the timing, you've been through all this, Elle was six months old nearly, and you had started to go through a bit of a process, hadn't you, where there was a kind of a psychological competition over who was mother?
1: That's what it felt like at the time. Yeah. In those moments of new motherhood, when it's take, it just obliterates everything else, you know, sort of what your friends are doing and what you might wear and where anything is in the house and stuff. Being a mum is like, chemically what's going through your body, all you're supposed to be doing. I felt really territorial about it because I'd been kind of like indoctrinated for all this time. I was really vulnerable and I did want to be a really good mother. And I did feel territorial over my position as the mother. But I also can see now that I'm not in that moment. I know Lesbian couples where one of them carried the child and one of them was the egg. And they're, they're both the mother. Like, it's not the definite term that I thought it was. And in those moments, I felt absolutely sure of what being a mother, the word stood for and what its importance was in my life. And that was in a large part new motherhood and in a large part society. Now I can see it from just such a wider lens. I don't want to disparage how anyone else feels about motherhood.
0: I'm not
2: in that game. God, no. (laughs) I mean, the whole thing is just incredibly poignant and moving and brave, actually, to have written this book because, you know, Dee's transition is going to be the subject of much debate. But there's one point which I think anybody, in fact, anybody will identify with, not just people who've had children and i haven't had children so yeah i can't comment on that but you talk about wanting to kind of be acknowledged as superwoman. this amazing thing that your body has done and it's produced this baby and you've got this sense that d is more in love with parenthood
1: yeah than
2: he is with you and that just that just made me go Ooh.
1: Yeah, I definitely felt that. And I don't think that's especially uncommon. But I did definitely feel it. You know, again, at the time, it was really painful. I felt like the acknowledgement that I wanted wasn't being met. But also, I had sensed what was going on, but I wasn't far enough down that road to articulate it. So I was looking for reassurance that I was never going to get because (laughs) I had understood something that wasn't yet spoken. And I'm glad that it's in the book for the aforementioned reasons. There was no way I was ever going to move forward past some of those feelings without really sitting and acknowledging them. So, yeah, it was really, it was really, really difficult. And it wasn't mendacity on Dee's part, and it wasn't a conscious desire to make me feel bad because she was also kind of tending to my every need when I just had the C-section and was doing so much to help me. I may have felt some of those feelings, even if there'd never been a transition at the end of the road. The frustration of a bossy person being incapacitated. Yeah.
2: That, there's a certain amount of that, isn't that? Like the control freak, unable to control everything. Yeah. <laughs> Did you and Dee ever talk about the timing, the fact that, you know, Elle was six months and...
1: Oh yeah, I was livid. I was, uh, yeah, definitely. And I said all of the Kind of cruel but heartfelt in that moment things about, like, oh, now you've got your baby, you can be free, kind of stuff. But I don't think it was that way round. It wasn't, now I've got a baby, I can be free. It was, God, can I carry on lying another generation down, as it were, rather than, haha, off I go into the sunset? Yeah. I think it's easier to not be honest with your parents because you don't want to upset them or cause trouble or whatever but it's harder to, I don't know, do it to the next generation as well. I mean, lots of people have focused on this idea of the child was so young, which is understandable. I mean, don't get me wrong. It was a really bad Christmas (laughs) Um, night. But I did feel like really quickly, like within a couple of weeks, an almost delirious sense of freedom. Once I realized this was never to do with my crap breastfeeding. This was nothing to do with, I should have read these baby books. It's absolutely not to do with anything I did in this marriage. It's nothing to do with me. And now I've got the whole of the rest of my life. The one thing I absolutely feel is that no time was wasted in my life by this. A lot of people seem very preoccupied on the sort of patriarchal ideal of me as this sort of sainted new mother. And I I don't feel that. I feel like my son had no language Never experienced a parent moving out and the kind of grief that that can entail, was never witnessed arguments or conversations that he didn't understand. And he has only ever known two parents with a really good relationship who are both very hands on and share a lot and has developed language that in many cases he has chosen <laughs> for both of us. And those are just huge, huge, huge reliefs to me. And I get to step out and go into the world and find new partners with a child. And, and it, there's like a kind of dizzying sense of freedom to go into the second half of your life without all the things that used to be the markers you were meant to be looking for. You know, Nearly 30 years worth of every boy, every Take that poster, every cute tweet, all of it, no matter how many books and feminism you absorb, there was always part of you going, could I have a baby with this person? Could we be a family? And there's something like a sense of sort of delicious vertigo that all you have to do now is just be lovely. You don't have to make a family with me and you don't have to settle. Like I have a really great grounding of my own now and that sense that you you kind of had to be the houses converging. (laughs) You went on a date and got on and it was like, oh, but could we ultimately end up here? I'm not bothered by that now. And maybe that's middle age as well. That may have come to me regardless. But yeah, just be a nice person to go for dinner with or sit on my sofa with or... Help me make some flat pack furniture with <laughs> all the other stuff that I was taught. I was looking for in a relationship is no longer of
2: consequence to me. Freedom beyond compare. <laughs> it's really interesting, I and mean, and you kind of said, "Oh, maybe it's middle age." But the number of women that I've spoken to who are postmenopausal, so depending on whatever age that happened to you, who describe that feeling in in very similar terms, actually mm. that that lifting, yeah. whether it's hormonal or whether it's societal or so it could be the hormones going away but it could also just be the societal pressures are lifted off me now yeah and I can just do whatever the hell I want you know I still got to pay the rent and all of that but yeah. you know beyond that those kind of pressures to do the girl thing whether or not you loved doing the girl thing whether or not you still love doing the girl thing yeah it becomes your choice instead of an obligation
1: And there was a real sense for me when all these three things all informed each other so much and my age was a part of it as well. So I definitely have had someone grab my bum on a train in the past and not said a word because I thought that was, you know, part and parcel of London's beloved transport system. And in a way, I was the one that made it traumatic by speaking up. And that was very possibly age. In part, they might not have happened 10 years ago. I might have responded differently to the whole thing. But a massive sense that I had with when these three things all happened at the same time was that I was going into the next stage of my life and I had to really properly sort it out. And I'm prepared for people to disagree with what the choices I made were and what my responses were. I've had a lot of time and that, that's fine. People will disagree with the decisions I made, but not all of them do. And I pr- don't think even really a majority do, but I was really aware that it couldn't be a fix. Everything was too screwed for me to just have a kind of fudge it Sense. I had to see the court case through to the end and I had to really work out what I felt and how I wanted co parenting to work. And I was aware that there was a time to like really be a grown up and make decisions that I could stand by for decades to come. Whereas I think 10 years ago, I would have gone, What do the five friends I speak to most think about this and how can I please them? Or <laughs> that, you know, what will they say on the internet or something like that? Whereas this, it was so bad that it kind of, it sort of stripped a lot of that type of anxiety away from it.
2: And a lot of that, I think, was age. Do you care what they say on the internet now?
1: On the whole, no. But I found it very difficult to have people messaging me um, to tell me I've been abused or gaslit or a victim of domestic violence and things like that because, well, it's not true, But also, it's very disingenuous. (laughs) If you really cared about me or cared about those things, I don't think Twitter is the place you would have that conversation.
2: (laughs) (laughs) So really, you've written like Running Like a Girl, Leap In, and Now Somebody to Love. And they're all really memoirs through the prism of your relationship with your body and fitness but there's a something that you talk about in somebody to love after you've had the baby and you've kind of you've lost the ability to swim which was one of your kind of coping mechanisms and fitness mechanisms and you've also lost the ability to run in
1: case anyone's listening and thinks I like literally forgot how to swim it was because I didn't understand how much having a c-section would cut through my core muscles I couldn't navigate myself in the water without that core kind of yeah, and your core
2: strength was screwed yeah up.
1: and it really frightened me it would have been fine if I'd been in a pool but it really scared me when I got in the sea and I thought it was going to be this blissful rebirth moment and it was terrifying oh my god you're
2: just like washed out yeah yeah it was like a sort of toy that someone had thrown in. (laughs) But it's the way you describe um, carrying the weight of a self I didn't recognize at all. And you talk about a stranger's body. And I know this is post-childbirth and post your particular experience of that. But when I was researching the shift, the number of women who described their bodies in really similar ways to that, about when going through the perimenopause body, -hmm. Completely not recognizing it. And with their mind as well. I think they'd be interested to know how did you get back from that? I know it was a long process, but.
1: Yeah, it was awful at the time. I couldn't run because I have something called a bicornet uterus, which means that my womb is sort of the shape of a heart. And so when I was pregnant, the baby was in only one cornet, I suppose. (laughs) So I I had a very unstable pelvis because I was basically lopsided for the sort of heavier part of my pregnancy. Took a long time to straighten that out to get anything close to being able to run. And then there was the C-section thing with the swimming. And they were my solaces by that point. And not just physically, it wasn't just that feeling of, oh, I've done five miles on the downs and my cheeks are flushed and the blood has pumped through my body. It was also a place where I went in my thoughts away from screens and where I reminded and retaught myself that I could reach goals and achieve things that seem impossible. Like the speed at which we can get fit is eternally startling and gratifying. And I really missed that. I really, really, really missed sort of having a goal and being able to go for it and goals which had just seemed like laughable only a few years ago, were no more. And then I found it really hard when I did get more able to do those things, to feel the loss of fitness and all of that. And it, it took me quite a long time to feel that sense which was so hard one of separating pride in my body from being pride in what my body looked like that was like the absolute essence of running like a girl was learning to love my body for what it could do not what it did for other people and it took me a really long way to get back to that and weirdly a lot of it was lifting i think paul bell has got a book coming up about women in strength yeah And I really enjoyed doing weights and I found it really satisfying that I began to be able to track the weight that I could lift in the gym. And I really enjoyed being able to track the weight of my son with the weight that I could lift. (laughs) I started off kind of really lopsided from carrying that baby and then started to feel my kind of shoulders right themselves until the point at which the weight that I knew my son was was lighter than the weight that I was then lifting so then he grew and the amount and, and things like that it all kind of psychologically helped that sort of being able to turn it into something practical rather than hey I'm going to the gym to lift some metal it was like yes my own son no longer defeats me even though he's two and a half so yeah it was some of that but I think the thing that was the most helpful was knowing and having recorded and gone through the process of talking about it so many times and discussing it with women in my inbox, in book events, in podcasts like this, that what seems Absolutely insurmountable, whether it is a 5K, a marathon, five marathons, swimming the channel, whatever, is if you break it down, often very doable. Yeah, sure. Lots of it's privilege. And I think, especially outdoor swimming, the sort of, yo, you can just swim in a river anywhere. Who needs gym membership? I find that very wearying when it's like, well, yeah, you have to live in a nice house in the countryside, which backs onto a river and be able to afford a £100 dry robe and all of that stuff. But in essence, what our bodies are capable of when we set a goal is often way more than we dare to imagine and i had tested that again and again in running like a girl and written about it and then had the absolute life-enhancing bliss of seven years worth of an inbox of people then writing back to me and saying oh my god thank you so much my dad died my sister had breast cancer I had depression, whatever. And then I read your book and I thought maybe I should give a marathon a go. And I did it. Thank you so much. And those messages still kept coming at me when I was in my worst state. I felt like I'd created a virtuous circle. And these were readers who had no idea. I, my son was one before I even spoke, even slightly publicly, about what was going on. And um, that was amazing. And I'm trying with this book to kind of rebeam it back out like a sort of lighthouse mm-hmm. that keeps turning because it genuinely kept me going to know that things I had done five years ago were helping people when I was in a low ebb and that they were telling me just as I had told them and that felt like not just an amazing testament to what all of our bodies are capable of but also quite telling about what women believe they're capable of mm. and how the power of telling other women your story can embolden them and vice versa maybe vice versa isn't quite right Re- Reverser, <laughs> yeah. but also about writing my writing isn't about writing as such, I found it very emboldening and confidence-giving about the future things that I will write, that my past work served me well when I couldn't work, and now my Mm. current work hopefully will go out and do things for people in the same way.
2: Yeah, because even though your personal experience, which you know th- this book is about, you know, a lot of people might think, well, that's not going to happen to me. Well, I'm sure it's you would have thought that wasn't going to happen to
1: you. admittedly. <laughs> yeah.
2: A good half of the book is about feeling abandoned, betrayed, whatever by your body, and how you worked yeah. your way back into it and rebuilt your physical and psychological strength. And you know, yeah, sort of
1: there's a lot in there about Instagram and my sort of wrestling with that as well. Mm-hmm of how women so often feel obliged to share their flaws instead of just being represented well. Generally, in marketing and film and TV, they are represented in this sort of hyper real way, which then has sort of led to over the last few years, and especially when I was feeling at my worst, to sort of endless parade of people sort of forcing reality. But it maybe wasn't always reality. It was just people sort of competitively showing their absolute worst to try and redress the balance of perfect social media. And I found that at times equally distressing, like, you know, how come Mark Zuckerberg has still still got us all wandering around in our pants for the internet like can we wear cardigans
2: (laughs) you know you don't see very many men exposing their you know their flaws their anxieties some some It feels to me like yet another pressure on women. And certainly when I, again, when I was researching the book, a lot of the women I spoke to, say, for instance, the body positivity movement, said that instead of feeling empowered by that, they felt like it was another pressure and like another thing they should be doing. I
1: definitely did feel like it was another pressure at times. If I was on holiday and I took a photo and there was no social media, and then I wanted to send a picture to my friends to say I had a nice time. I would send them the picture where I looked the nicest. <laughs> it's like, seems polite apart from anything else. But suddenly you're being expected to kind of look the nicest, but also sort of shove an old pair of socks into the shop to, to create reality or kind of have some belly rolls or and or discuss it or kind of use right hashtags. And, and And everything just felt so loaded. Yeah, it was, I found it absolutely bewildering. And the sort of all pervasive use of reality or normal, which sort of just felt like these sort of dog tatty old words that had lost or sort of, you know, tried to put them on a page and they would just sort of slide away because they didn't mean anything anymore.
2: It's like you say in the book that you'd always just wanted to be average.
1: That's completely only a word that works in context. If you think, what what am I average globally, average in the UK, average in my age group? And yeah, I used to go and do talks when I was publicizing my previous books. And it was coming from a place that was sincere and well-meaning and a result of endless exhausting marketing images for all swimwear companies. And you, even as recently as a year or two ago, you know, you'd see swimwear, men were told this will help you smash your PB and women would be told for the same brand, for something made of the same fabric, this will help you hide those problem areas. And it was just so bewildering and exhausting. So I talk about like just wanting to be the average sportswoman, the average woman, the Just, just for, can't we just have a swimming costume for the normal woman? When I was saying normal, and I'm pretty confident most of the people who were listening to me saying it, I just meant not much bigger than maybe a size 14 or 16, able-bodied certainly, middle class Mm -hmm. and just that was what was normal in my life. At the time (laughs) I was trying to do a positive thing and I don't regret it and I know that it was more useful than just photoshopping all my curves away and going hey just going for a swim but now I feel like I've really kind of held those words in my hand and turned them over like a pebble and thought about every little crack or crease in them and worked out where I want to spend my time and what is a thought that I think as a result of trauma that I've been through and what is something that I can't helpfully spend my life or my writing time on and yeah it really made me think about how casual I had been with
2: certain words. I think we probably all are and in- probably all need to think about that a bit more. We
1: didn't used to have everything we wrote or thought recorded by other devices in our homes. And and it was accepted that you would think differently over time because there wasn't an ongoing record of your past flaws, you know.
2: No, that's true. How has the last five years or so affected how you feel about your body now?
1: It's made me really, really proud of what it's achieved and where it's taken me. I mean, lockdown aside, I'm really aware of some of the most beautiful things and times and experiences that I've had, both with my son and since, because I did a fair amount of travel as part of this sort of rediscovery of the self. And they've always been very naturey, beautiful trips. I've been to Norway and the Lake District and the Dartmoor and done like big trips and walks and swims. Like I couldn't get that 5K down to that time that I used to be able to do before I ever got pregnant or had IVF. I had to be a run for going outside and seeing something beautiful. I see and love my body as a tool for having got me to views that I saw that changed my life and were more beautiful for having been seen with the blood pounding through my body. You know, bits of Snowdonia and bits of the Lofoten Islands. That that I've swum or climbed or sat in really
2: have stayed with me
1: all the more
2: yeah yeah because you swam didn't you before this you swam from Kefalonia to Ithaca I've actually sat on Kefalonia looking at Ithaca and never even considered swimming it
1: and I really want to go back to Ithaca and like have an actual holiday there when someone says Greece to me I really think of the view of the sunlight bouncing up off the floor of the ocean, having gone down and back up again. And it just looks extraordinary. And I wouldn't know or have ever been able to imagine what that looked like if I hadn't really put in the work and the nourishment training to be able to do that swim, to have that view. If I ever had an accident or I'm not able to use my body the way that I am in years to come those are things that will definitely be the memories that keep me going for me those sorts of experiences are the ones that I really am thankful to my body for thing thing I always come back to is it's what it's helped me see it's not what it looks like to others it would be extremely disingenuous to pretend that I didn't wish I left the house looking super hot every day And also, I'm not prepared to invest the time in that
2: in the same way that I am in getting fit to get to the top of a mountain. It's the whole kind of J-Lo that looks unachievably amazing for a 50-year-old and you're like, yeah, but it's her job and my job is to and write stuff I can't be bothered, you know. Exactly, it takes an army and it takes a fortune. Before I get to like the questions I always ask at the end, there's one thing I've just been thinking about and I just wondered if you've thought about it, which is technically you and D are going to be menopausal at the same time you are going to be obviously biologically menopausal and societally menopausal but she will be societally menopausal mm. at the same time have you given that any thought
1: i hadn't i think that was because of i'd come at it from the angle of ivf so i was really aware that it felt perfectly natural unacceptable and reasonable for me to take oestrogen, which is the main thing that you take when you're doing IVF. You pump your body full of oestrogen. It's the same hormone that most, I, I don't know enough to say all trans women take in order to do the egg collection surgery. And when I was doing that, I just felt like a woman sitting on a sofa, having a cup of tea, doing what felt natural and societally acceptable to live the life that I felt was best and happiest for me and who I was. And I have really thought about the chemical element of trans women's lives in, through that prism because I, I felt like I I couldn't get that angry about it. <laughs> about other people taking oestrogen to live their best most of them lives because it was exactly what I'd done. But I haven't really thought about it through menopause. I'm quite enjoying, even if it's just a couple of years, not thinking about hormones. I felt like <laughs> hormone levels dictated so much of the last five years of my life, literally levels of going and having blood tests and doctor surgeries and being told this amount means this and you're this age. Duh. I will think about it. But at the moment, I've enjoyed my discussing Norwegian Hill <laughs> yeah,
2: maybe you know next book or in a few years time you can come back and we'll talk about that then
1: yeah
2: okay I'm going to ask you the questions I always ask mm-hmm. firstly what's your emotional age I definitely definitely was not in my
1: 20s when I was in my 20s if you see what I mean mm. how old are you about
2: 45
1: yeah. yeah what am I 19?
2: yeah I'm about to be 45 yeah yeah I feel at it or approaching it yeah what book would you push on a friend what's a book that you often recommend
1: I really pushed on a lot of people last year such a fun age because it it covers so much so nimbly stuff about race social media class and also some of it is so funny that's probably something I pushed more than anything else in the last year but also the the writer that I always push on people when they have that kind of I just want to shut my brain off and enjoy, and I call it a narrative intervention, is Ruth Ware. I really love her thrillers for that kind of, I don't want to have to think about my life
2: for a while sense. I really love them. Um, What advice would you give younger women? I
1: would say to remind them that they probably know their own minds. I think it's too easy to believe that because you're young, you don't know what you think cool um who's your old
2: bird role model i think
1: i interviewed her for you billy jean king i interviewed her about 48 hours after everything had gone awful in my life in the autumn of 2017. And I can say without doubt that it was one of the happiest hours of my life. She was intoxicating in her positivity, her inclusivity, her charm, her ambition. She really changed things for like a generation of sportswomen, a generation of LGBT plus people. And she was best friends with Charles Schultz and had incredible anecdotes. It was one of the happiest experiences of my life. She was exactly who I hoped she would be, just entirely herself and fearless and joyful. What's your superpower? I think it might be my sister. <laughs> <That> <laughs> me, brilliant. She's so different from me that it's like having a mirror. you can you know that bit in Mary Poppins when she looks in the mirror. And the mirror answers back and goes, that's quite enough from you, thank you. She's so different from me that she can remind me at every point in my life that you can have just the same upbringing and be totally different and she's absolutely the opposite to me physically. So she's incredibly tall and skinny and can wear tight jeans and look incredible, but was always jealous of my boobs when we were growing up. Yeah, it's it's like having a mirror that talks back to you and go, well, it's not just you out there, you know. Yeah. <laughs> but she gets me in a way that I don't have to explain.
2: Brilliant. I can honestly say nobody has ever said that before. <laughs> um, and lastly, how many fucks do you give? I give lots of fucks. It's just that I position
1: them carefully (laughs) it's not for me to say I give zero fucks because there are loads of things that I really and sincerely care about I just have gone through a very intense process of deciding where I can and have the time and have the instinct and the desire to dole out my fucks
2: (laughs) (laughs) thank you Alex that's brilliant
1: thank you so much for having me
2: (laughs) thank you for listening I'd love to hear your feedback. You can reach me on Twitter at Sam Baker and Instagram at TheOtherSamBaker using the hashtag The Shift. You can hear a new episode of The Shift each Tuesday on Acast, Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, please do rate and subscribe because it really does help other people find us.